Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. I'm Faza Draki and I'm really excited for tonight's event, Breaking Down Disinformation. It's such a prescient topic at the moment and we're going to be discussing what makes it so influential and problematic. What are the roles and responsibilities of our institutions and platforms? And then we're going to get a little bit into how we can counteract disinformation for better decision making. We're very fortunate to have some brilliant minds with us tonight. To my left, we have Lee McIntyre, Research Research Fellow at the Centre for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. Over there we have Joanne Gray, lecturer in digital cultures at the university and an interdisciplinary academic with with expertise in digital platform policy and governance. And we also have Micah Goldwater in the middle, senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Sydney. So please join me in welcoming Lee, Joe and Micah. So Lee, we might kick things off with you. In your book, you emphasise a distinction between misinformation and disinformation. Can you just talk us through why that's so important and why disinformation is such a massive problem? Yeah. Um, It's crucial, I think, to make the distinction between mis- and disinformation, and it's one thing that drives me insane. When I watch TV and the journalists say misinformation when they mean disinformation. Misinformation is an accident or a mistake. It's when somebody believes something false, but there's no intentionality behind it. It just happens to be false, and maybe if they heard the facts, they'd change their mind. Disinformation is a lie. Disinformation is when someone shares a falsehood intentionally with another person for the purpose of getting them to believe that falsehood because it benefits them. That is to say, the person who's sharing the disinformation, not the person who believes it. And that's what makes disinformation so virulent. Um, And it's why journalists need, I think, to do a better job of marking the distinction, because otherwise, you're just treating it like it was a natural disaster. You know, think of when there's a hurricane or a typhoon, what do you do? Oh, you just put your head down. There's nothing you can do. But if it's disinformation, there is something that you can do. Um, Why it's a massive problem? Um, Because it's so virulent. I mean, the the lies, people have always lied throughout history, but what makes our era right now so, uh, so in danger, both for science and democracy, is that people now have the capacity to share lies Um, through partisan media, through social media. Um, Just think of how many times you've seen disinformation or misinformation you found out later maybe on the internet. Um, Used to be that people could lie and they didn't have an audience. Now people have websites, they have an audience and literally the lie can get halfway around the world before the truth can get its shoes on. That's what makes it so dangerous. You mentioned social media, and obviously we'll be getting to that um, later, particularly with Joe. But, Micah, can you just talk us through, so where we see something online, (laughs) 
uh, that's disinformation. What's actually going on in our brains and what are the psychological processes that make it so compelling? Sure. Yeah. So what's really critical for what's happening in our minds and brains is about how we uh, make sense of the world, right? So we make sense of the world with explanations that are embedded in narratives, right? So narratives provide explanations for how the world works, such as, you know, they communicate the cause and effect of different events, right? A leads to B leads to C. And often when we're first hearing something new, now this is a situation where you haven't already sort of been drawn into a sort of web of lies, let's say. Let's say you're just sort of first coming across something and it sort of seems like a potentially reasonable explanation for something, right? And we end up evaluating it based on how all the pieces sort of fit together in the moment of hearing about it, like the way you would follow a story. We don't necessarily think, I don't actually know nearly enough to understand what this person's talking about. Or sort of do we really, really critical evaluate? We often think, oh, we can just train people with critical thinking, but we don't sort of uh, necessarily just jump right into understanding how to even evaluate things. I'll give you... Um, uh, an example, right? So think of, so recently, uh, uh, the R RFK Jr., a fringe presidential candidate in the U.S., has been talking, spreading a lot of disinformation about uh, vaccines, right? And he sort of talks about how, um, well, there's sort of mercury uh, as in the preservatives in vaccines, and this mercury is what is, you know, uh, we're giving these to children, giving these to kids, and, uh, and we all know mercury is a toxin. We all know mercury is bad, right? And then this is what's explaining the rise in ADHD and autism and all these other things. And when you're sitting there and you're listening to him talk about it, it's sort of it's picking up on little bits of knowledge that we have, right? We, we know mercury is bad, right? And then the rest of it, and we sort of know about ADHD increasing or whatever, but it's sort of putting it together in a way that isn't actually sound. And we don't think... And we don't even realize that we don't really know what he's talking about and that he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> so in the sense that, um, so the, for example, the form of mercury that's in, that's the preservative in the vaccine isn't the same form of mercury that is the toxin in, in the environment. And the dose sizes are totally different. And so it's actually not dangerous at all. And they even banned the these preservatives anyway, like decades ago, just in case, right? But we listen to the story that he's telling and it seems very compelling because who doesn't want to help kids, right? The kids are in danger. This is a problem. Who doesn't want to help kids? And so when we're following that, and when we're following his story, and all the pieces fit, and we don't think, oh, is there some element of science I don't understand here that would actually dis disprove this? We sort of get bought into it. Um, and so it relates to this general phenomena where we often navigate the world. We don't sort of realize how little we know about almost everything. <laughs> We, you know, we go around the world feeling like, because we navigate the world, it's like, I get how this works. So, for example, you can ask people, how does, do you know how a toilet works? And they go, yes. And then you go, how does it work? And they go, well, I hit the button, and then everything goes away, right? And then and so you sort of realize that you don't, it, we, we very rarely actually interrogate understanding of things. And besides, like, the one thing that we're really expert in, right, we don't really understand very uh, much. And that's even before we get into the, all the issues of how people use these stories to dispel, uh, to sort of break trust and blame people, right? Because there's also the kids are the victims, the pharmaceutical companies are doing this to them, right? And so that's also very compelling. But I think we'll get more into that part as, 
Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for now. I love the toilet analogy. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, do I really know how it works? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are compelling stories that, that your mind kind of picks up on. But, but Joe, these compelling stories don't just come out of nowhere. <laughs> there are obviously platforms that are amplifying them. So can you talk us through what role platforms play? So the short and obvious answer is that platforms, digital platforms, play a critical role in misinformation and disinformation. Um, and it, it, you can, we can understand them having sort of a systemic effect and an effect at the level of the individual user. So platforms, digital platforms, the ones that, we, that dominate our lives, for um, Google, Facebook, Instagram, they work... It, the, the economic logic of, of those platforms is to keep us on the platform, engaged with content and exposing us to ads. That's how they make money. And that lends itself to the, the algorithmic systems that run, this, run these platforms and the content that we see, the, the algorithms that decide which content we, they show us. That economic logic lends itself to showing us the most evocative, uh, the most alarmist, the most um, uh, sort of engaging uh, uh, content, which makes room for misinformation and disinformation to come in. So that's the broader systemic function of how these systems work. But then also we can look at the level of the individual's, individual user's experience on a platform and the design features that we encounter when we um, use platforms, what the platforms let us do on there. And they also play a role in this ecosystem of disinformation and misinformation. And essentially what I'm talking about here is there's this, what's happening, well, which from my discipline, what we see is happening is that there's this kind of collective endorsement of information that happens on platforms. So if I encounter something on um, Facebook that says um, there's mercury in the vaccines or 5G is dangerous. And I see that, um, that 500 people have liked it and um, 60 people have shared it. It's, I'm, uh, people often take that as a collective endorsement of that information being true. It's like, oh, okay, that must be serious. That must be true. And we see that effect that this sort of, a lot of people are saying it, so therefore it must be, it must have some credibility. We see that coming up in the research as playing a significant role in, in um, this sort of disinformation infrastructure online. Yeah, that's so interesting. And you've, <clears throat> pardon me, you write about it as being kind of like a social activity, which I found really fascinating. Um, and I think, Lee, that fits in neatly with what you write in your book about the amplifiers in this whole, this whole process. Yeah, the, there's, a, um, there's a pipeline with this information. It starts with the disinformers who have something that they want, money, power, advance their ideology. It goes next to the amplifiers who take that message and uh, you know, send it out to a wider audience, sometimes to a micro-targeted audience, which is you know, the opposite of what you'd think, just broadcasting it widely. But the ability to micro-target is actually quite scary because then you're finding exactly the, the audience that you want to hear your message. And then finally, the other side of the pipeline are the believers, the victims, the people who are not really getting anything out of believing it, but they believe it nonetheless because they think that it's true. 
And the interesting part of that pipeline for me is, if you think about, and I know we're not ready to talk about solutions yet, but I'll just put this on the table. If you think about it, it cracking down on the amplification is going to be, I think, the most effective way. How do you get disinformers to stop sharing disinformation? It's hard because they're an advantage. Uh, they, they want it. And some of them are foreign. I mean, how, what can anybody in Australia or the United States do to get Vladimir Putin to stop sharing disinformation? I, I'm not sure there is anything. On the other end of it, how do you get people not to believe disinformation when they hear it? There are some remedial uh, steps you can take. Some of them even work, uh, but it, they're not enough. Uh, I think that if we're going to solve the problem of disinformation, it has to be where we take that pipe and we pinch it in the middle and we keep the amplification down because without amplification, disinformation is worthless. That's a fantastic sizzle to what we'll be discussing later. <laughs> Thank you. In terms of some of some of the problems and some of the, the, the steps, sorry, um, in yeah, cracking down on the amplifiers. But let's dive a little bit deeper first into, I guess, the believers. So who who's vulnerable, Micah? Right. Yeah. So um, you know, so to a certain extent, what I was highlighting before was that in a way everyone is to a certain extent, right? We all have to trust somebody, right? We, you know, we can't do all of our own research for everything, despite what the conspiracy theory type people might say, right? We, we you know, we eventually, um, and, and we only so much we can sort of do, but at the same time, uh, there certainly are people that are more vulnerable, right? So the research on um, uh, uh, conspiracy theories sort of sh showed that people who have, who have lost a sense of control over their lives are particularly vulnerable to getting swept up into conspiracy theories, right? And so when you see this at sort of mass levels, like with more uncertainty in the world, like when there's a pandemic, you sort of see a rise of people grabbing on, onto conspiracy theories. And, um, you know, when you see this with RFK Jr. Uh, himself, where he, uh, his infant went to the hospital several times and was almost, and almost died, right? What type of thing would let you feel less sort of control over your own life than your than you know your infant being sick, right? And so, uh, and then coming up, then joining the conspiracy theory is sort of like a way of taking back control into your life. Now, sometimes it's unclear what they've really lost control over. So, like in the in the in the QAnon example, right? Um, <laughs> you have people who are feel victimized by, say, I guess in this case the deep state or global elites or whatever it is they're talking about in this case, and then they're taking back control by like participating in this uh, fabricated, um, you know, conspiracy that they're involved in, right? And so this relates again to the sort of narratives because the narratives sort of talk about who's a victim, who's a hero, who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, right? And so if you're, so, so if you're, so people who've lost control in their life in some sense potentially feel victimized and can then be sort of told, well, here's how you can sort of regain control in your life by joining into this. And if something has happened to lose trust in an institution, like, for example, the school principal who, uh, shooter in Queensland um, last, or when was that exactly? Um, right, this person was part of, he, you know, was in the education system, was a successful principal, and then lost, something that happened to his health, he kind of lost his job and sort of lost, and because he, he sort of felt betrayed by this institution, he lost trust. He, then when he had this family member who, who got himself up into this conspiracy theory, he was sort of 
ripe for the uh, picking in that sense. All right, so, so yeah, on the one hand, we all are, but if, you've lost, if, if you see someone who's sort of lost trust institutions, feel victimized in some way, they're particularly likely to get swept up into these things. Do we know much more about the demographics of those people other than the, the fact that they, you know, if you feel like you've lost a sense of control, um, you might be more vulnerable if anyone else wants to? Depending on the particular thing, there, around COVID, there certainly was this thing around sort of young men being particularly resistant to advice around uh, staying at home and things like that. Um, but that that might have been uh, uh, sort of about uh, perceived like infringements on their sense of autonomy. So it's, I think part of it has to do with the particular um, particular threat because a lot of it has also to do with identity threat. So if, if someone can pitch the disinf- whatever the disinformation is related to a threat of some core value that someone has, central to their identity, then um, that's sort of uh, part of it, right? So in this case, if sort of your autonomy around the world is sort of central to your view of yourself, then an infringement on that is like rife for uh, exploitation. But I think depending on the particular disinformation, the demographic might change, I would say. Mm. And you know, looking at different contexts as well, are there sort of nuances in tactics across regions and cultural contexts in how disinformation plays out? Or is there kind of one playbook or kind of one pattern that we tend to see? It's the same playbook, but it's weaponized around different issues. So one thing that you see, one thing that I realized uh, that led me to write the new book is that Denialism doesn't come out of nowhere. Usually denialism is caused by disinformation. I think of science deniers as cafeteria skeptics. They walk through and say, oh, I don't, I don't think that climate change is real, or I think the earth is flat, but I'll still fly on a plane. I'll still you know, use electricity. I'll still use my phone to tweet about the Flat Earth Convention, even though it uses satellite internet traffic. So, I mean, they pick and choose. Why do they pick and choose the things that they pick and choose? It's because they're weaponized, they receive weaponized information about them. Think about who benefits from anti-vax, who benefits from uh, climate denial, who benefited when the cigarette companies uh, had their campaign, this is an easy one, uh, their campaign about, uh, you know, of doubt about whether smoking caused lung cancer. It may not immediately spring to mind um, who would have an interest in weaponizing information about the vaccines. How many of you have heard the idea that there were microchips in the COVID vaccines? Okay, how many of you know where that came from? It was a Russian disinformation campaign. In April, 2020, in April 2020, one month into the pandemic, um, the, uh, uh, a branch of Russian intelligence uh, put a story into a publication called the Oriental Review, which is an English language propaganda arm of the Russian intelligence, saying that any future vaccines developed in the West would have tracking microchips in them courtesy of Bill Gates, who held patent 666 on that technology. Now, that is weaponized information around vaccines, because what do you do when you read that? You think, damn, 
I don't, I don't want tracking uh, uh, microchips in me. And how do they even get them in there? But this sounds scary. And then at the bottom of the story, it said, share on Facebook, share on Twitter, which thousands of people did. By May 2020, 28% of the American public believed that story. I didn't break into CIA headquarters to find this out. This was reported in the Wall Street Journal. Cable news never picked it up. And even the Wall Street Journal, uh, it was behind a paywall. So I, somebody heard, I didn't think of this, but somebody said recently that uh, uh, these days, uh, the lies are free, but the truth is behind a paywall. <laughs> so we didn't hear of this. How many people died because they wouldn't take the COVID vaccines because they were afraid it might have tracking microchips? What was the Russians' interest? They had a competing vaccine, the Sputnik V. Lucrative, this was May, April, May 2020, Asian African markets, think about how much money they could have made if the Sputnik V had been really good. This was before Pfizer and Moderna, right? But also pride, they called it Sputnik for God's sakes. I mean, Russian pride was on the line. So you may, not, you may wonder, why would anybody create disinformation? Who benefits from that? There's usually a story behind it. Share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter, you said, in Absolutely. terms of that story. That's what they did. Joe, what was happening with Facebook and Twitter in, in, in May 2020? Yeah, so I think what you're alluding to there is the lack of regulation and responsibility of platforms in this space. And um, what that stems from, so basically the, the platforms don't have a lot of obligations to do anything about misinformation or disinformation. And that's that lack of responsibility stems from a very American ideology and a very American set of values. The ideology that the Silicon Valley uh, tech people have pushed successfully for the last two to three decades is that innovation is good and that government shouldn't regulate it because they'll get in the way of socially beneficial innovation. Governments are slow and inept and just leave it alone. We'll self-regulate. We'll, we'll do a better job. And that line has been successful, um, pushed successfully, and that's been the approach to most internet regulation. At the same time, we've had embedded in those companies this US version of free speech, which is probably this is an overstatement, but it, it is almost absolute, free speech absolution, uh, free speech, absolute free speech. And so what that means is that there's this sort of approach to these spaces where we're told, no, you can't regulate and you can't stop people from speaking. Um, but of course, in countries like Australia and the EU, we have rules against what you can say. You can't defame people. In Germany, you can't promote Nazi propaganda. You know, there, we say in other countries that you can intervene and say what people can and can't say to some extent. But also, um, the right to free speech does not mean the right to amplification, which is sort of what Lee's been talking about, that these platforms um, provide global uh, spa spaces where you can speak globally. And free speech is about being able to speak against power and, and, and not be persecuted for that. It's not about being accessing um, the global population on, on X or Twitter. Um, so that's kind of the re regulatory space. And I, I, we can talk about um, 
what we might want to do. But, but I suppose my, the, the central thing that I like to say, which is kind of hopeful, is that we can push back against those ideologies and against those value systems and say that we want to regulate platforms in Australia according to Australian values, so that ensure they are operate according to Australian values, whatever we decide those Australian values to be. But we don't have to take on anymore the, those US positions. Let's dig into that. What is the hope for the future? What can be done? Um, and are there examples where we've seen successful interventions and policies that we can learn from in Australia? So, Mark, I'm really interested in the research on pre-bunking. Yeah, so, um, and this was being alluded to a bit by Lee, so there's this, this research suggests that if you can get ahead of some of the spreading uh, misinformation, disinformation, or uh, live, if there's something sort of spreading around and you identify it and you can get ahead of it, and let's say you know someone who is prone to, you know, watching certain types of YouTube channels or something like that, um, if you get ahead of it and warn people uh, that you say, hey, this is being spread, this is, this, is, this is the motivation behind the people spreading it, right? So you want to sort of point out that people are going to try to get you to believe this thing because they have a vested interest in getting you to believe it. And here's why the argument, and here's why you shouldn't. Here's why that's wrong. This is wrong with the argument. That seems to work, it seems to work better than trying to get rid of the idea after people are exposed to it. Right? Generally, we're really bad at, we're, it's really, we're, we're really good at just adding more and more information to whatever we're thinking. Um, or, you know, we forget some stuff, but we, but we sort of are happy to add more things and just mush it together with our past ideas. But it's really hard to get rid of an idea once, once we've committed it to memory. Once we sort of think this is how something works, it's very hard for us to remove it entirely. And, and so you need to sort of uh, inoculate people in, a, in the metaphorical cognitive sense against these bad ideas. Um, and there is some evidence, though, as you know, so that's the good part. I let that <laughs> talk about it. But the problem is then the, 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 the scalability of these things. So even though there's some effectiveness of that, you know, how then you end up getting to this sort of arms race of like, well, can we somehow get our pre-bunking video out on YouTube faster than the like other people got their disinformation video out on YouTube, which leads to what they're more, uh, more expert in is like, well, maybe we should, you know, try to not have YouTube. Spreading, spreading the uh, disinformation in the first place might be better than us trying to like warn people effectively. And how are you meant to kind of anticipate all the different... <laughs> <laughs> right, right, there's like so much anticipation that we can, yeah, we can have spies in the conspiracy theory generation. <laughs> <laughs> and Lee, you write about some examples of pre-bunking in your book as well. Yeah, uh, th there is research to show, so there's debunking, which is, you know, the person has already heard the bad thing and you try to get them to give it up. And uh, then pre-bunking, you know, you get out ahead of it. Now, Mark Twain said it's easier to fool somebody than to convince them that they've been fooled. There's a cognitive bias, the primacy effect. The first thing you hear, you're more li likely to believe it. But with pre-bunking, uh, what you want to do is discredit the liar before they hear the lie. Uh, because then that's the first thing that they heard was the discrediting remark. Um, and the research here, uh, a lot of it is done by uh, Sander Vanderlinden uh, out of University of Cambridge. He's got a new book out called Foolproof by uh, Stephen Lewandowski in uh, University of Bristol and by John Cook at University of Melbourne. 
here in Australia. So these are you know, three people who have really done a lot of work on pre-bunking, which can be very effective. But my worry is this, think of it in terms of, think of disinformation in terms of an epidemic. You heal the sick if you can, but you also try to keep other people from getting sick. So pre-bunking you know, is maybe like a mask. It keeps them from getting sick. You know, it's preventative. But wouldn't it also be nice to have a vaccine? Wouldn't it also be nice to, you know, to crack down? And I mean, you have vectors of infection with disinformation um, that are sort of unbelievable. Uh, the Center for Countering Digital Hate in 2019 found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Can we do something about that, please? Really, 12 people? Uh, and uh, the night before Elon Musk took over Twitter, I checked, and eight of them were still there. So we can't blame it all on Elon Musk, although he deserves plenty of blame, I think, for this you know, false idea that uh, you know, censorship is the same as you know, refusing to amplify someone else's lie. But you know, there, there are things that we can do, and I think the answer is, Yes, and not you know the single silver bullet. I think we need to do a lot of different things to try to fight against disinformation. Yeah, and Micah talked about scalability, which I think is so so interesting. Um, and I want to get to that in a moment in terms of um, platforms and policy. But Lee, you you outline actually ten steps that individuals can do. So this, these are things that I guess people here in the room tonight and watching on the live stream can actually take away from. Can you share some of those with us? Yeah, it's a short book, so I don't want to give you all 10. Because, <laughs> uh, look, the last chapter of my book is 10 practical steps that anybody can take to fight disinformation. And the reason I wanted to do that is this. One of the goals of disinformation is to make you feel helpless. It's to make you feel like you can't know the truth, that it's just impossible. How can you be your own fact checker? When somebody's got a fire hose of lies coming at you, you might think, there's, I'm helpless, there's nothing I can do. Somebody else, you know, take this problem from me. But once you understand what's going on, there are things that you can do. So I'll tell you the most important one. The most important step that you can all take in fighting disinformation is to use the word disinformation rather than misinformation where it fits to understand that we're actually in an information war. It's not a natural disaster. It's not a hurricane. It's, it's a battle. And if there's a battle, you know, we all can play a role in fighting back against disinformation. Don't share that story on Facebook and Twitter if you don't know that it's true. Um, other things, I mean, in the, that I talk about in the book in more depth, you can actually have an influence on your local... Uh, uh, cable news coverage, or even on the internet companies. How many, I mean, people write angry letters to the cable news companies or, you know, to Twitter. How many people write to their advertisers? How many people write to PayPal or Akamai or, you know, the other companies without which Twitter and Facebook could not exist? That was Joan Donovan's idea, not mine. Maybe the world's leading expert on, on uh, disinformation. Uh, she's also a new colleague of mine at Boston University. Very glad that uh, she's there now. So, you know, there, yes, there, there are a lot of things we can do. So that's at an individual level, but what about policy and regulation, which, as we know, can often be kind of slow to keep up with the pace? Joe, what can help 
So this is where I like to, or where I start to think about Micah's advice that we, we, we can tend to think we know more than we really do. So um, it's, it's a new area and there isn't good research. And so one of the first, there isn't good research because these companies are black boxes. We don't get access to them. Um, they're conducting global experiments. We're just looking at what happens from the outside. So that's step one, um, legislating so that researchers, um, civil society, uh, responsible stakeholders get access, better access to the data so we can test and understand how things like pre-bunking work and, and to what extent and how they can be designed in effective ways. But at a broader level, I think, and we are seeing this shift in some legislation around the world um, and, and in the rhetoric of poli some policymakers, um, we, to the extent that platforms are regulated or have obligations now, it tends to be an obligation to react to bad content. They react, but they have an obligation to take it down or they, have a, they, they bring in a, a policy against some sort of content and when they see it, they take it down. What the, sh the shift that I'm observing and, and what I think is a good thing and we need to go further is to make them responsible for preventing harm. So they don't, they have a responsibility under the law to protect or prevent people from being expo exposed to disinformation or other, other harmful content. Mm, yeah, pre-bunking, preventing, that seems to be part of the, the solution, kind of getting there. Once it's out there, we, the option is going one by one around the world and trying to change people's mind. We, if we make the, the platforms are the gatekeepers and we need to put that responsibility onto them. And not everyone can go to a flat earth convention like <laughs> Lee did in 2018. <laughs> one, one by one's not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and having all those conversations. In actual fact, the, the federal government does plan to introduce a bill to combat um, disinformation, which has attracted some criticism from the Human Rights Commission and the Australian Christian lobby, for example, what are your kind of insights into how a mechanism like that could work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a pretty good start. Basically, what they're proposing is that there will be a um, form of self-regulation, a voluntary code of conduct uh, that, that against for, for platforms to have rules against the spread of disinformation. Fine, that sounds good, like a good first start. There's also, though, the, they're proposing powers to make the platforms report on what they've done to address mis- and dis disinformation. That is also good. Um, the fear of the legislation infringing upon free speech, again, I think that's adopting this US idea of free speech, that any time you've had anything... Um, censored or not amplified that that is an infringement of some fundamental right that is an example of u.s free speech um a u.s free speech model and i think we can have those tricky conversations about what speech should be um, permitted in these spaces and what speech should um, not be permitted or at least not amplified such a complex topic with really far-reaching um, consequences. We've been so lucky to have these brilliant speakers with us tonight, Lee McIntyre, Michael Goldwater and Joanne Gray. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking them. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. 
Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. <laughs>